0: you're listening to bella figura the tradition of living beautifully i'm your host dolores alfieri taranto in this show we explore bella figura the art of beautifying all facets of your life with a focus on heritage as a means to do so In each episode, I talk to designers, writers, fashion bloggers, healers, and others from various ethnic backgrounds about what I call the holy, the elemental, and the majesty, their culture, spiritual style, its principal values, and their lineage and family stories, all in a straight talk manner with minimal woo-woo. Join me in spiritual conversations for the rest of us. Your heritage is your superpower. Learn how to wield it. Welcome back, everyone. You keep coming back for more. This makes me very happy. Uh, Really glad to have you with me today for another exciting episode of Bella Figura, the tradition of living beautifully. With this episode, we're kind of getting caught up to the current moment. As I've said in the intro to the last handful of episodes, they were all recorded before the coronavirus outbreak. And as you'll hear in this episode, this one was recorded as things were kind of starting to really unfold. And so my guests and I get into that and we do start talking about tools, specifically tools and thoughts and uh, ideas that we are using ourselves in order to kind of brace ourselves and get through this time calmly and with grace as much as possible, of course. I'm going to file this episode under the holy, which is my term for our culture's spiritual style. I'm finding that not only me, but a lot of the people I've been talking to, whether it's just in my own personal life or in conversations on social media, a lot of people are turning to the holy right now, probably a little bit more than they normally would. And obviously that's for reasons because there's just so much happening right now. There's so much uncertainty. We're all under so much pressure. We don't know what the future is going to look like. And you can say, well, we never know what the future is going to look like, which is accurate. But we are in a moment where that fact of life is completely hard to ignore. It's as if all the, Distractions we usually have in life, especially here in America, the busy schedules, the jam packed schedules, I should say, that really take us away from the holy are gone now. So we're having to really look what it is to be human and what it is to face really scary things on a global scale. I know for myself, I just wrote a post, a blog post which you can check out at uh, com, and I'll link to it in the show notes. I just wrote a post about something that I've been doing more so lately which is praying in Italian, Italian of course being my my native language, so my my ancestral language. And I give some tips in that post on how you can also do the same for your culture's specific language even if you don't know it. And the reason this has been kind of so nourishing for me is because obviously our spirits are connected to our ancestral land and to our ancestral language and I find that praying in a language that I know my mother prayed in, my grandmother prayed in, my great-grandmothers and so on and and back and back and back Makes me feel protected because I feel like I belong to the tribe. And it's hard to describe. I'm sure that perhaps somewhere out there, somebody's done some study. If anybody knows about it, please send it to me. That when you pray in your ancestral language, something just kind of awakens inside of you. And I feel a like humming, resonating connection to something larger than myself yet something that belongs to me and right now that just feels really good so i've been praying you know the our father and uh, hail marys etc but as i say in the blog post it can be a prayer from your cultural ancestral cultural religion or you could just write a prayer yourself and translate it into your ancestral language and pray that. I think that if you try it, even with a very short prayer, a couple words, I think you'll feel something similar to what I'm trying to describe. And you'll see what I'm saying, that there's just an extra level of grounding, an extra level of depth of connection. And really, we could all use that all the time, but especially right now. So definitely shoot me a DM or an email if you do try this and I would love to hear how it felt for you. Okay, so I want to introduce my guest. With all of that said, my guest is Alicia Joe Rabins. She's a writer, musician, performer ritualist and Torah teacher. She is the author of poetry books, Divinity School, which won the APR Hanukkah First Book Prize, and Fruit Geode, which was a finalist for the Jewish Book Award. She's released three albums with Girls in Trouble, her songwriting project about biblical women, and she's currently at work on an independent film titled A Kaddish for Bernie Madoff. She's the recipient of a 2020 Oregon Literary Fellowship, And she lives in Portland, Oregon, with her husband and two children. So just quickly, I met Alicia at a writer's conference, a Bread Loaf Writer's Conference some years ago, and her work is so varied with regards to the mediums that she creates in. But it all has a thread that relates to her Jewish heritage, and I, of course, love that. (laughs) And I love how she weaves tradition into a fresh approach to art to make it edgy and modern. So let's jump on in. I'll meet you on the other side. Alicia, welcome to Bella Figura. Thank you. We were just uh talking a little bit before we started recording about how we haven't like really been in touch or even <laughs> on social for like several years. Um and this kind of just came up because I was looking again at your work and I thought, my gosh, she's perfect for Bella Figura for the show. I'm so glad. And we—I should let the audience know—we uh, met each other at Breadloaf Writers Conference, which is a, a prestigious writers conference in Middlebury, Vermont. I don't even remember the year. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> to yeah, be honest,
1: three years in a row, and it's all a blur in my mind. So I don't know which one it was either. <laughs> oh
0: wow, you went three years in a row! Gosh, that's great. The first year, I think, when when I was there, I think you were there as a fellow. Correct? Was it?
1: Was it like a year and a half ago?
0: Oh, gosh, was it like 10 years ago, it was like 10 years ago.
1: Okay, yeah. So I was there yeah. as a fellow year and a half ago, but I felt good. I was like, Oh, no, I thought it was so the other string was like waiter, and then social staff, which was like serving drinks. Oh, which my is gosh, fun.
0: waiter. Yeah, I forgot that was even a thing.
1: I know it's not anymore.
0: Is it not?
1: <laughs> they just stopped it. Yeah. for the, I think this will be the first year without it. <laughs> or maybe last year was I forget when exactly that was announced. Is there a but, yeah. reason
0: why they stopped it.
1: There was something very, I think yeah. it, my outside perspective is that it, it kind of grew out of, a. it's a very old conference. And I think right. originally there was like this thing where it was like a bunch of white men and they were sort of like the older ones would kind of haze the younger ones. And it was like, this is how it works, you know? And so the younger ones would like serve the older ones who were these famous writers. And, and then over the years they'd grow up and become the older ones. And now that it's like, it's so diverse, people are coming from so many different directions. And it just felt like to have, I mean, I, my perspective of from the outside of why that might've been a good idea, it's just, it would just set up a weird sort of like people are serving other people yeah. and some, you know, it's, it's just odd. So yeah. I think they decided to have like different forms of fellowship. Right, <laughs> right. No, which weird. makes
0: sense. Well, it was a, a great experience, but I, but never, and it's a great conference. This is not like bad mouthing bread in any way, but I, never since high school, had I felt such of like the stratus, like, you know, of, uh, of different levels. It's just so high school socially, like the, the fellows uh, yeah. are in one place, the waiters are in another place, you know, God and, forbid yeah. you were waitlisted. Like, <laughs> and I, yeah. And I think that's
1: all kind of changing, that's you good. know, like, yeah. Cause it's such also like, it's so warm and loving and, you know, it, I feel like it just has these sort of relics of. When it was founded by Robert
0: Frost, right, and, you know. right, another another time, like you said. But I mean, case in point, met some wonderful people that even if it's not like on a daily basis, you're still kind of in touch with. And you know, look at you and I. This was ten years ago, and we've kind of loosely been in touch on social media. And now we're gonna we're about to have a great conversation about our lives. Absolutely. So thank you,
1: Breadloaf. We love exactly.
0: So thank you, Breadloaf. Exactly. <laughs> so Bread yes. So to begin, if you want to just jump in, um, just tell us a little bit about your heritage and the people that you come from? I am
1: Ashkenazi Jewish, which means that I'm Jewish and my ancestors in sort of the recent hundreds of years came from Eastern Europe. So there's different names and sort of um, traditions for Jews who come from, say, Spain or um, North Africa or Middle East. So Ashkenazi Jewish is, you know, Poland, Russia, a little bit of Germany, Lithuania, that kind of thing. And my great grandparents came to this country in the 19-teens. And basically there was a little bit of maybe religiousness that held on for like maybe a generation in some, some of those families of my great grandparents, but a lot of them were like, okay, done with that. And so they remained culturally Jewish, but let go of a lot of the religious part, right, right, which for Jews doesn't necessarily mean being completely non-religious, but just letting go of a lot of the rules and becoming just kind of, you know, assimilated into American culture, changing their names and things like that. And so, you know, by the time I was born, I have two Jewish parents and was raised in, it was definitely a Jewish household, but it was also a very non-Jewish neighborhood. And so it wasn't, I didn't grow up with a strong sense of like, integration in my community. And like, this is who we are. And every, you know, weekend we get together, it was sort of like, okay, something's different about us. And we don't celebrate Christmas. (laughs) And then at a certain point I had about mitzvah, and I was very drawn to certain elements of it, but I didn't really have like a larger structure to fit it into. And then in college, I started to get really interested in it because I went to Barnard College in New York, where there's a very large Jewish community. And it was my first time basically being around other Jews, and especially a diverse community of Jews first time meeting Orthodox Jews, first time kind of learning about these more engaged ways of living with Jewish tradition and Jewish texts. And because I'm a writer and a word person, I fell madly in love with the text part. And because I'm also kind of a ritual lover and, a, and someone who's very spiritually interested, I also really fell in love with a lot of the traditions and the more religious part. So together, that was a bit of like a, a explosion <laughs> inside me which led me to Jerusalem after college, where I thought I would kind of take a brief detour to find out more about my culture. And I ended up staying for two years, um, studying full time in a tr- kind of progressive yeshiva. So that really put me in a different place. And then after that, ever since I've pretty much been integrating life as as an artist, like a writer or musician, and this kind of deep loving engagement with Jewish texts and traditions, which I also have been teaching for almost 20 years now.
0: So I love I love that that's your story, because I think so many of the people who listen to the show and have, you know, just kind of follow the, the work that I do from my first podcast, uh, the Italian-American podcast, are are kind of in your shoes, right? They're not necessarily first generation there, you know, it's their great grandparents who came from wherever it is, Southern Italy That's or right. other cultures. And what they feel is, is a sense of, you know, wanting to reconnect and wanting to deepen that heritage and that culture. And I love that you, you, your whole story is about that. And once people start listening to this conversation and they, and then they look further into your work, I think they'll be so comforted in a way because your work is so infused with mm. your heritage. I, I would have guessed that you were, you grew up in a very traditional, <laughs> right. Very traditional Jewish household, very thick with tradition, but that's not the case. No, absolutely
1: not. And I'm still, you know, my parents like will call me with questions like, why do why, why is this the tradition? Amazing. <laughs> I'm, sort of, I'm the, I'm the like makeshift rabbi of my family.
0: Yeah. So, you, okay. So what, was your family's reaction to this kind of new reawakening, if you will, of your ancestral culture?
1: I think at the very beginning they were like, Oh, interesting. Hmm. And then the next step was like, uh oh. <laughs> because
0: <laughs> she's serious.
1: <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of fear, I think. I mean, there is a path that some people go down where they change their life so drastically that they essentially, when they become more religious, that they essentially sort of leave their family of origin and you know, if they start keeping strictly kosher, maybe they can't eat in their parents' house without a lot of modifications. Or, you know, if they start observing all the rules of not touching people of the other opposite gender, then suddenly like old family friends who they've grown up, you know, having like hello hugs, suddenly there's this thing of they're like, I can't touch you, you know? And so I think my parents, when they saw me like going to Jerusalem to go to a yeshiva and
0: study Torah full time, they were like, oh no. (laughs) Oh yeah, of course. Like as if they they would lose you in some ways through this. Exactly. Exactly.
1: And it's so interesting because they'd always been, you know, I was, they're really free thinkers and I had, you know, I was a pretty kind of socially, I didn't rebel against them a lot, but I feel like I I always was sort of encouraged to question social conventions. So my mom, like when I stopped shaving my legs when I was 14, was like, awesome. You know, they weren't, I didn't grow up in a family that kind of wanted me to tread a specific path. They were very much like, whatever you want to do, like we support it. And this was sort of the first thing that they were like, uh, I don't know (laughs) about that.
0: (laughs) They just didn't expect this. They (laughs) they were like, do whatever you want. We support you. Except, whoa, we didn't, we didn't think you were going to go kind of in a way back.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: I love it. I love it. And, (laughs) and, um, what, why do you think that that happened to you? I mean, well, actually, before you answer that, let me ask you, do you have siblings?
1: I do. I have two younger sisters.
0: Okay. And what's their experience with you? Kind of, are they similar to you in this vein, or is it like t- they're totally different? I am the outlier. Everyone else is okay. like, sort of
1: continues in my my parents' path.
0: <laughs> Interesting. Okay. And so, why do you think that you were you were so captivated by your your culture?
1: You know, I'm actually working on a memoir about this. Nice. Yeah, which is so fun. i have been working on for about three years, very slowly, because as you know, I'm, I'm I'm coming from a poetry background, so mm-hmm. it's, it's new for me to write this book length um, nonfiction, and it's really fun and challenging. But it's been making me think about it from a distance, and I I think, I mean, I do think I have a I have a whole kind of larger theory that that sort of organized religion has become so. So much on one side of the kind of political social divide in this country that it's so, so often kind of belongs to more conservative America, you know, and that there's really something missing. I I grew up in progressive America and, and I think that progressive America has a hard time sometimes with religion, which makes sense because it comes out of a tradition of rules and laws, even if it's in a more nuanced relationship now. So I feel like I... I really missed, I missed a direct engagement with, I mean, I'm I'm very, I'm very grateful for how I grew up. I had a wonderful family, wonderful experience. So I'm not saying this to complain, but everyone has to find their own kind of (laughs) the things that they have to find in their own path. And, Mm -hmm. And my, one of my things was an engagement with a, a spiritual community and a spiritual tradition that kind of stretches back many generations. Like I would sort of invent my own little Backyard rituals, things like that, as I was growing up, which I now see as feeling a need that actually religion is specifically there to fill. I think it's great to innovate rituals. I still do that as well. But I think I was also so hungry for a sense of structure. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm an artist, so I'm like super sensitive. I'm kind of overwhelmed by all of the things that I sort of see beneath the surface. And it's for me, religion and not even just Judaism, but kind of religious structure in general is so helpful for me because it helps me kind of like grid my own, fit my own life into some kind of human grid where I'm like, okay, these are life cycle events. This is the arc of the day. This is the arc of the week. Here's the holiday calendar. And there's sort of, it directs the energy of those times. And so I think I never realized that I was missing that because I thought I knew what Judaism was because I did have abundance, Mitzvah. I did go to Hebrew school once a week, but it was a pretty watered down version just because of the fact that my family wasn't that engaged in it. And that that just kind of happened that way. And so when I realized like, oh, there's a whole other part of Judaism, which A, fills this need that I had and B, helps me understand how I was different from the people that I grew up around, which was always kind of an intense thing for me because all of my friends were Christian. And I went to Christian youth. I convinced my parents to let me go to Christian youth group in middle school because <laughs> I was like, "It's really not religious. It's just social." They're like, "Okay, you know," <laughs> because that's Can't all my Can you just go get did. ice
0: cream, Alicia? <laughs> exactly.
1: exactly. I know. And I and you know, I was like, "Can I wear a cross? Like just like Madonna? It's not oh, like a right. like I don't think that's appropriate for like our culture." You know? Yeah.
0: You were searching though. You were you were trying to find something that that fit.
1: I was searching and I wasn't, in, in that respect, I wasn't really looking for that religion. I was I was looking for like, what is this part of me that's different from everyone around right. me? And so the combination of, whoa, there's a whole tradition that I actually can learn about that will explain why we do what we do, you know, and the combination of my own kind of inner spiritual needs being met or addressed was so powerful for me.
0: So I really, I resonate with a lot of what you just said. I do consider myself a Catholic I just had a baby. Congratulations. Thank you. And we had a beautiful baptism for him in my husband's original neighborhood in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, where oh. yeah, it was really important to us to kind of have the whole, you know, the continuity of, of you know, where his ancestors came to when they came from the Aeolian Islands in Sicily and where he had grown up. And the ch- the church there is kind of one of the oldest Italian churches. I think in New York, if not the country. And wow. so, yeah, it was, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful day. It was like, Ooh. we wanted to do like a classic Italian American Brooklyn I love <laughs> that baptism. So yeah. And it was perfect. It was so beautiful. So, you know, I really understand what you're saying when you talk about this idea that in in our country in these days, I, I do feel like religion, I mean, especially the Catholic church, which... I say all the time it, it does have its sins is not without its sins and they are grievous. So like, it's not that I'm making excuses for it, but culturally as something that you can enter into in order to enrich your life spiritually, it's a shame that organized religion is so kind of frowned upon because like your tradition and even the Catholic tradition, especially in the Southern Italian vein is, is so endlessly beautiful. Like there's so much in there. And I feel like so many people today, it's part of why I wanted to start this show. I mean, so many people today are looking, they're searching, you know, for something that they can follow. Right. So you have like, people are turning to yoga. People are turning to Buddhism, you know, and I feel like they're spending so much energy and time searching when so often the traditions that are kind of in your own heart and in your own DNA can really lead you there.
1: Yeah. Or, or, or the combination of those things that we can kind of learn from what's around us. Because like, I love, just like you said, like I love integrating also yoga and, you know, Buddhist teachings into my own spiritual practice, which is, you know, so profoundly Jewish too. And, and yeah, there's something about the rootedness that I think grounds us. I mean, I think about this a lot that, and not just religion, but like you're saying, kind of any culture or family history Mm -hmm. that I think sometimes in contemporary American culture, it's kind of famously so about the individual and that can be really liberating when like everything's great. (laughs) And then when things are challenging, I mean, even, you know, like the last few years and specifically the last few weeks, you know, have been really challenging in the world and in America in all different ways for everyone. And for me, kind of situating that with a very long
0: view is so helpful. Oh, what a perfect way to say it. Continue. Yeah. Yeah. It just makes
1: me feel less alone as a person, less alone as like a a human living in time. And like, oh, cultures go through these shifts. Mm. Families and cultures pass through times of peace and times of conflict and, you know, times of health and times of pandemic and times of great change and times of kind of stability. And that is part of the human journey. And yeah, some people might be born into like a golden age where they happen to live through a time with very minimal drama. But generally, I think if you are lucky enough to have a long life, there's you'll be touched by this. And I think it really helps to contextualize it, you know, with a long view that this is it's kind of part of the ride and, and we're not alone
0: beautifully said you know I was reading something yesterday I don't know if it was on Instagram somebody I can't honestly remember but it, it was something about how as people of different ancestral cultures and I think it might have been an Italian American who was writing this but she said you know we people we have a long genetic memory let's say of plagues mm. <laughs> right <laughs> of, of, of plagues and viruses and things that have really impacted our families our, our very civilizations, our cultures. So like, in some ways, some of this fear that we're, you know, you could be having some of this panic could be related to this kind of genetic memory, where somewhere inside of your, your blood in your mind and your spirit, you have seen this before.
1: Absolutely. And if and like, you know, in in some ways, that can make us panic more. And in some ways, I think there's, there's also another side of it where that can kind of I mean, I like the feeling of like, wow, maybe my great, 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 great grandmother kind of lived through something similar. And, you know, I also have like young kids was sort of taking care of her kids, trying to keep keep everybody healthy. They get through Mm -hmm. that sense of connection is just very comforting to me.
0: Absolutely. Like you you think to yourself, we've passed through this before. Mm hmm. And Absolutely. you're a part of that as a, as a, what, like you just said, as a woman, as a mother, as a descendant, and, and even as an ancestor, you know, for those yes. who come after you, right? Exactly. So it's true because when we start thinking about how it's just now, you know, this isolation of like, it's just this moment and it's just us, it is very, it is very frightening. Mm -hmm. but the the world has gone through so much of this. So I love all of that. I mean, one of the reasons that, that absolutely I wanted to have you on the show, I kind of call this idea. I'm circling back a little bit about the idea of the, the cultural religious spiritual side. I just call it the Holy, you know, Mm -hmm. and I I think when we can connect and I've, I've seen it just with so many of so much of the work I've done and, and I've hearing from listeners that, connection in that way through the holy just just deepens our lives and just in inexplicable ways yes i agree so in terms of your work alicia i i really don't even know where to start with you (laughs) (laughs) you are by far one of the most dynamic artists that i've spoken to in a long time and dynamic in the sense that you really do everything I feel like. And uh,
1: no, I don't dance. I don't. I mean, only for fun. <laughs> I
0: dance for fun. But no like, one wants okay, to <laughs> that's probably the only thing you don't do. And you you're the way you're incorporating the things that we're talking about is so is so rich. And I just want to dive a little bit into your culture and your heritage, but in terms of your work. So as uh, the listeners heard in the introduction in your bio, I mean, you're a Torah teacher. You have your your project girls in trouble, the indie folk cycle, you have two books of award-winning poetry. You're in post-production for uh, a film, a Kaddish for Bernie Madoff. So it's just like – and all of it has this kind of thread, right, of, of the culture and the religious, the holy that we've just been talking about. So let's just start general, right? Were you always incorporating your – your heritage and your culture, I mean, once you started reconnecting to it, is this something that kind of surprised you over time?
1: Yeah. So the way that my sort of path went was that I I began writing and playing music at a young age and really loved both of them and was more kind of professionally serious about writing. For some reason, I was just one of those kids who was like, I'm going to be a poet. Even though I don't yes, even know where I got too. that idea. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so I studied poetry in college and I, I played music and really loved it, but I never thought of it as a professional pursuit because I was, grew up playing classical violin and I was, you know, that's such a like specific thing. I was like, I don't want to practice like five hours a day or whatever. I just love playing music. Yeah. And then after studying poetry so intensely in college, I basically kind of burned myself out and, you know, speaking about kind of spirituality and, and the sacred, like I, I I really got to a point where I felt like I had sort of, I mean, to use the word professional with poetry is weird because it doesn't make any money, but I had, (laughs) I had, I had so focused my studies on poetry and I was entering all these poetry contests and I was working at a poetry nonprofit downtown. And I just kind of started to think like, well, who, who am I outside of this? Mm. And I I was realizing my self worth was all tied up with whether I felt like I was writing well that day. And, and sometimes at the nonprofit I worked at, I would answer, I was, you know, the lowest like office assistant. And so I would answer the phones and sometimes these like famous legendary, like, you know, 70 year old poets would call and be kind of like rude to me on the phone. Oh gosh. (laughs) And I was like, wait, is that like, they don't, he doesn't sound happy, you know, Mm. like that person does not sound happy. And I suddenly also, I was 21. So I could kind of, see a little bit beyond myself for the first time and I I kind of thought I need something else to ground me like poetry can be my passion but it can't be what grounds me in life cuz it's it just doesn't work for me so I essentially stopped writing and that coincided with the time I went to Jerusalem so when I started studying Jewish texts I wasn't writing at all and it kind of took over that place in my life honestly like it was kind of seamless like I went from graduating college studying poetry to to summer job, and then going to Jerusalem and studying sacred texts. And and I loved not writing. And I sort of made a deal with myself that I would write again if writing came out of me without me pushing it all. But I was going to like, take all the ambition, and all the structure and and work out of it. And I actually didn't write for four years.
0: (laughs) Mm, That's a long time.
1: It was a long time. And finally, it started kind of bubbling up. And I still was very delicate about it. And I was like, I'm not going to send anything to magazines, not going to enter any content, I'll just kind of be with the writing. But when I did start writing again, because I was coming out of these two years of intense study, and then two years of teaching Jewish texts, I, I began again, with Jewish texts kind of integrating themselves very naturally into it. Meanwhile, in terms of music, because I hadn't professionalized it at all, I just kept doing it for fun. And it Weirdly, the opposite happened where I fell in love with folk music and I started playing like Appalachian fiddle tunes and I started playing on the street with some friends and and we formed a band and we started making money. And um, so it became actually part of my kind of freelance weird artist like job. And when I went to Jerusalem, I also started learning some more traditional Jewish music. And so that really kind of seamlessly integrated itself in real time, where my, I basically added traditional Jewish music to a repertoire that I was already falling in love with traditional American music. And that was really lovely, because I could kind of, you know, I'm not from the American South, but like, I I did grow up in in a suburb of Baltimore. So it's not, you know, it's not far. And so in one way, I felt like the kind of Appalachian fiddle music felt so kind of, and folk songs, you know, they felt so American. And a lot of the music that I loved was kind of folk music and old folk ballads. So to start playing that that music coming out of classical felt like, oh yeah, this is my culture. But then when I started getting really into the Jewish part of my culture, I was like, oh, this is a totally different part of my culture. (laughs) And so I would basically kind of, I started to integrate them. So I'd play With bands where we would do a bunch of different fiddle traditions. And so some would be like bluegrass and and some would be klezmer, which is Eastern European Jewish music. And then everything sort of continued to grow on its own. And after a few years of writing again, I would say I was in a pretty integrated place where Jewish texts and traditions and artistic traditions were sort of woven into everything that I did. Although I definitely don't have that as a... I kind of... I'm always open to doing a project that doesn't have anything to do with that, but it just keeps seeming to work its way in.
0: (laughs) Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I get that. So, Interestingly enough, if it's any consolation, I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas for three years. Oh I, wow. <laughs> I went down to work at a literary magazine. This was uh in my like early twenties. And I was supposed to be there for three months. I stayed for three years.
1: Wow. Yeah,
0: and I started a country band. <gasps> I wrote country music. I had like a beautiful collection of cowboy boots. Oh, <laughs> And I was in love, I mean, along with the literature of the South, right, like Flannery O'Connor and William Faulkner, I was in love with the music. And I think you kind of briefly touched on it. I think that what we kind of share in common and what so many of our listeners share in common, that fervent embracing of culture was kind of the same thing that brought us to embrace the southern folk culture, southern American folk culture. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I love that perspective. Yeah, Yeah. it's just a
0: difference. Like you said, it's just a different side of your heritage. I mean, as much as my ancestry is Italian, and I'm so proud of that, and connected to it, I'm I'm American. Right. Here we are speaking English, you know? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think it's funny, it's almost like you, like you have to like pass through that and then come back around to the, mm-hmm. i don't know to like the cultural mm-hmm. roots mhm it's all very I, mysterious
1: <laughs> yeah and i think it's like an ongoing conversation absolutely like i don't think one is necessarily more authentic than the other it feels like the that's that is part of like the beauty of being american i think is that there's this melding and it's a complicated melding and i still love i mean with girls in trouble my. So there's songs about women in the Torah that
0: are Yeah, talk about it of, a little because this project, do you call it a project or do you call it something else? I do. Yeah, okay. I call it
1: a project. Yeah, so, yeah. so this
0: project is is so interesting to me and it's it's so extensive. So talk a little bit about Girls in Trouble, please.
1: Yeah. So Girls in Trouble, I call it a song cycle because it's basically a linked series of songs. I have 3 albums out and each album has 10 songs and each song is in the voice of a biblical character who's a woman. And I I it's called Girls in Trouble because I'm I'm interested in writing about the moments in their lives that are more challenging or complicated, really for the same reason that, that I was talking to you about looking at a long view of the things that are challenging as a society. So same within a personal way. Mm-hmm. I love how not having grown up with a familiarity, deep familiarity at all with the Bible, I sort of imagined and assumed that it would be like, oh, these like perfect holy people and that that's what the stories would be. So when I went to Jerusalem and started... Studying the actual text, I was really delighted to find that it was as complicated as anything that I had just been studying in like Shakespeare class in college and people had their own motivations and sometimes they acted well, but often things were really hard and there's family problems and marriage problems and power struggles and everything that, you know, life is really about as well as all the great stuff. So I kind of felt like, wow, Focusing on those moments of challenge felt actually kind of healing and literarily interesting and also emotionally kind of healing to, to contextualize the personal challenges we all go through. So when I write one of their, when I write a song about a biblical character, that's what I'm usually looking for is, is kind of like an emotional resonance where there's something I've struggled with or seen somebody that I care about struggle with and where that can link to a part of the character's story and then in terms of the sound of it, from the beginning, I I've, I've really wanted to do essentially what you what you were kind of talking about to, to integrate the different kinds of musical traditions that I love. So to integrate bluegrass sometimes, neuro kind of old timey fiddle music. And some of them are a little more klezmery. I really love like indie rock. So a lot of them are sort of indie rock sounding or kind of art pop. And part of the interpretation of each character is thinking about what genre am I going to write it in? And I play violins through a loop pedal. So when I perform them live, I use electronics with my violin to really build a much bigger sound than a solo violin would be. So it also allows me to have this sort of orchestral element. So I've been working on that for about 10 years. I've been putting out these albums and then I got a grant to write a sort of standalone curriculum, like a series of study guides based on each song that are all downloadable on our website yeah it's amazing and then now i'm actually starting actually today i have a meeting but i'm, I'm starting like the, potentially the last iteration but it's a big one is to write a musical where i'm kind of putting all the characters together in the form of a cabaret and wow. seeing, how they, seeing how they interact on stage together that sounds like fun
0: yeah i think it will be see this is what i mean people i mean you're just like <laughs> i don't know where to start with you like who even comes up with that oh my gosh (laughs) i'm gonna write a cabaret on women in the torah like uh like it's great that's great very original and you know it's true i mean the this is kind of like a circling back in a way to what we were talking about earlier with organized religion getting a bad rap same thing with the bible i get it it's been used as a tool of domination discrimination as well but really these stories are there are supposed to be a reflection of life's journey, and that's why they're in there. Personally, that that mystery in my faith with, you know, Catholicism of of Jesus being kind of both a man and a spirit and God mm-hmm. always kind of made sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I you know, I, I'm not a theologian. I can't really ever explain it but I, you know, like the the whole scene where he's in the garden of Gethsemane and having a dark night of the soul. I mean, I, I think about that so often when I fall into those places myself.
1: Exactly. I really relate to that. It's so meaningful to have these sort of mythic, like, kind of large scale representations of the things that we go through.
0: Right. And the, and the idea is, you know, this this is what these women that you're writing about in these women of the tour that you're writing about, this is kind of how these events get reconciled, right? Here, here is a path. Here's a map in a way that you can follow.
1: Or even just here's company in the way that Mm, I like like, that. Here's company. Yeah. Like sitting with someone when they're having a hard time is not necessarily about like giving them the right advice to get through, but just being like, I'm here with you, you know? And and so sometimes I feel like it's a two way thing. I like, I feel like sometimes with, with the characters, if I'm sitting in this really challenging moment of the story, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not going to look away from this difficult moment. You know, often I feel like, especially in organized religion, we like to like, I mean, I teach Hebrew school and there's, it's, there are moments when you should just really be talking about the positive stuff and that's fine. But like, especially for teens and adults, we need to have our challenges recognized and like the complication. And so I think, yeah, just being like, wow, this character in Genesis, like what this, character going through in this story is so relevant to like this crazy moment in just a personal life today. Um, it, it's really, I think it's really comforting.
0: It is. And with the loss of these stories, you know, in, in kind of the larger society, along with the rituals, that that's what you lose, you lose that comfort and that company of understanding that, again, what we were talking about with, you know, the Coronavirus, it's happening right now, etc. That, you're not the, f- we're not the first people to go through these things. Yes. You know, so it's great So talk about a little bit to me. I, I think these kind of companion pieces that you have with girls in trouble that people are, are, are being used as, as teaching, what, teaching devices. Can I say that? Is that yeah. what you would say? So are, how are people like reacting to those? How are they using them? Like, are are you actually just teaching the Torah through them, but like in a new way? I love it.
1: Yeah. So you know, because I'm both an artist and a Jewish educator, once I started touring with these songs, I would also get invited to, like, I would do a rock club one night and then I'd do a synagogue the next you know, <laughs> night. It's pretty much my life. And I would, in the rock club, I would just play the song, and in the synagogue, I would be like, "This song is about this character, and here's what I was thinking." And and sometimes I would even do a workshop, maybe with teens, where I would say, "Let's read the story." And then I'm going to play my song. And then I want you to make your own creative interpretation, you know, like collage or dance or whatever it is, be like, you know, which could be totally different from mine, which by the way, is like a Jewish tradition of commentary called Midrash, which is sort of like indigenous Jewish art form is how I see it. a literary form really that of um, taking the original text of the Torah and sort of, it's like fanfic. It's like you, you add your own perspective onto it or Hmm. you take fill in a gap in the story that's not quite clear or sort of explain a contradiction in the story or just like kind of double click on a little moment and and fill it in. And it's very creative and it's very permissive because there can be like a hundred mutually exclusive ones floating around. And so like they're all kind of just legitimate ways of looking at the story. And so to, to create those that midrash is a really powerful way of, of interacting with the story because you can really make it personal. And so it's really seen, it's seen as like an act of, of love, even though you're really kind of like rewriting the original story in a way. And so I, I really love, Encouraging people to make their own and kind of join me in this process, which I'm joining earlier generations in, um, and other people who live today. And so basically at a certain point, I was like, I can't accept all these invitations to, to teach, you know, at a, schools would contact me. I'm like, I, you know, I have two little kids. I can't just sort of pop out all the time. And I live in Portland, Oregon. So it's kind of hard to get places. So that's why I thought, you know, I want to just create study guides which could be used with just a person on their own because also people would write and say like who is this song about i really want to understand what you're thinking so the idea is a study guide could either be somebody just reading it has like an essay that i write about the character and kind of lyrics with annotations of like here's what the verse this is about but it also has these activities and, and guided questions if you are teaching a class or, or studying with a friend or something like that so that's how the girls in trouble curriculum came about
0: I'm like hesitant to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I love that in the in the Jewish tradition, you're kind of encouraged to do that, like to add your own perspective, interpret the story. Correct me if I'm misunderstanding anything you said, but I have to say that we're not it's not really a a Catholic tradition. (laughs) And unfortunately, and I think it's funny, I went through a period where I was going to teach. I wanted to teach. um, We call it CCD. Which is the Catholic school for young for young children? We all have to go through it. That's how we get our sacraments. Because I thought, you know, like I want to teach young Catholics Catholicism in a way like that. I see it right. So it's it's not because when I was taught it, it wasn't really taught to me necessarily in this inspiring, majestic way that I have come to understand what right, co- right what Catholicism can be. But I didn't end up doing it because. I I just felt like there wasn't going to be a lot of room for like kind of a little rebellious teacher, you know,
1: (laughs) I wonder if there, you know, does it vary by community? Like, do you think there are some communities that are,
0: it's a, that's a good question look, I could probably find out these days. I definitely have much more. i have like more connections with people who are doing a lot of really interesting things in the church and with the church, but I don't know. I think I just decided to do it through kind of like my work and, and shows like this. Yes. Yes. But, I love that, that there's a there's a space for someone like you, basically, in your yeah. tradition.
1: Yeah, I love that, too. I think that's part of, you know, that's one of the things I learned when I got to,
0: to Jerusalem. I was like, what?
1: Really? Like, just writing is part of this? <laughs> yeah,
0: that's amazing. I mean, you know, I know so many, like, kind of rebellious Catholics. You know, I, I know a lot of people who we kind of just have our own brand of worship. I, I don't know that that's really the way we're, quote, unquote, supposed to do it. But it's just the way it's evolved, you know, with people who very much think of themselves as, as Catholics and just integrate different approaches to it.
1: Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And that's kind of what I was saying before, where I, I feel like there are so many kind of individual progressive religious people in right. whatever tradition. And sometimes I sometimes there's just less structure around it. So it's harder to kind of. I mean it is it's hard to institutionalize progressivism. <laughs> it's, it's easier to institutionalize yes. conservatism just inherently, I think, and that's part of why. But I think there is so much power in being around people who are like I'm a dedicated I'm a devoted Catholic and I am like a you know, rebellious human being who wants to integrate those two things and, and kind of share my love of, you know. So yeah. Well, I've
0: I've talked about this a lot on on this show so far, but for me, it's interesting because it's kind of a, it's actually a cultural line to be that way. So the Southern Italian approach to Catholicism is very rebellious. Oh, Uh, Yeah. Because our, our nature of just like the way the um, society and the, and the culture was always kind of being invaded and oppressed. And then Mm -hmm. the priests and the church would be kind of like a way of, of controlling and, and dominating. So, people became very quickly suspicious of government, the church, like anything that, anything that, you know, could impose taxes, (laughs) take your land, put you in jail. And so we always have a tradition of kind of being suspicious while still being within the system, if that makes sense. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of always feel like, I don't know many, I know a lot of even of the older generation, like very devoted maybe go to mass every Sunday and, you know, have altars in their home, etc. But like, I don't think any of them go to confession hmm, and that's, that's amazing. yeah. And that's like a major part of Catholicism is going to confession. But the reason is because this distrust of, of the church in, in the hierarchy, right? Like I don't need the intercession. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So That's, it's in my blood to be like this. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Your ancestors woo-hoo. Exactly. Yes, you go. Yeah. So also let's move and talk about a little bit about your, oh no, before I actually wanted to, there's this quote from a video, you have a videos which I'll link to in the show notes about your different projects. And I was watching them preparing for today. And you have this great quote just before we leave Girls in Trouble. You say, it all investigates where the very contemporary lived experience intersects with ancient spirituality totally caught my attention i think we've probably talked about it already but if just before we leave this if you just want to like elaborate on that a little bit because i was like and that's why i'm doing bella figura the tradition of living beautifully Mm. (laughs) it was like i could you i could have used that line and you know like a (laughs) tagline for this show you
1: feel free (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i think i've always had somewhat psychedelic relationship to time, which is, I think, why it was such a relief to fit it into some kind of external structure, like I was talking about before, not just have it all in my mind. But I've always, in good and bad ways, been able to kind of rewind in my imagination, like hundreds of years or thousands of years and fast forward in my imagination, many years, which I have to be careful about, because it can be very anxiety producing. Mm. But what I love about like, you know, if the Torah is like 3,000 years old or whatever. And so if the same, the same scroll, right, these same words have been passed down through people tracing it, reading them out loud in their mouths, discussing them, right? It goes through our bodies. It's not just our minds. It's like a physical experience, but it's also mental, spiritual and emotional. And the thought of that kind of continuity make sense of that part of my brain kind of that can like go in my imagination very yep. far past and very far future because at the same time I'm just living now. And you know, the older I get, the more, I try to also be present in the moment, which is a challenge for me. Yep. But I think that for me it's sewing together, right? Like the, this very moment with ancient moments or ancestral moments or other other comparable moments of other people who have had, like I was saying before, kind of similar issues or society moments in society where we've been going through a similar thing. I feel like there's this like kind of just, yeah, bringing together these two, you know, if time, if time is just a line, then it's like taking these two points on a line and bringing them together. I don't Mm. think time is a line. I think I kind of agree with the people who think it's a spiral. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: And so it just really helps me understand what's going on. There's something about the idea that like, well, the past is gone. And right now here we are, and this is all that we have. I'm like, no, the past is, it's still deep in there somewhere, you know, and, and the future is contained in the present. Like it's more complicated, I think. And so taking a story or a tradition or ritual that people just have stepped into week after week or year after year over all these centuries, um, it kind of actualizes that for me in a way that is just very calming because <laughs> i can get really other overwhelmed otherwise
0: yeah, well i think and i'd like to hear your opinion on this i mean this kind of idea that the past is gone look to the future don't look back and this separation from from these kind of ancient traditions and this ancient wisdom and that like what what you describe as connecting the two is such a big reason why we have like a kind of really sick society Mm-hmm. I mean, that's my my feeling is this disconnect from th- this lack of feeling like you belong to something larger than you, which is way more accepted today than I than I feel like it's ever been, is really causing a lot of like mental and spiritual health issues.
1: Yes, I think so. I think it's I think it's I mean, I and who knows what causes what, but I, at the very least, I think it's so healing and helpful and comforting to have this sense of being like a star in a universe that has a pattern, (laughs) as Mm. opposed to like a random blip, you know, and I don't even mean that in some kind of spiritual like destiny way, even just in a sense of connecting who we are and where we come from on the most basic level, like you're saying, you know, just kind of having a sense that like, we are connected to our ancestors, we're connected to our descendants, and we're just not we're not kind of these like random alonenesses um, orbiting each other. (laughs) I like that.
0: (laughs) I like that. Yeah. I always, you know, I was fortunate because I grew up very, very much steeped in my heritage. I mean, we can have another conversation where we talk about the problems that that causes, (laughs) but in, in terms of the benefits, I always, I often felt like I had this kind of, I, I like to say my, your heritage is your superpower. And I I felt like I had a superpower because I had this confidence and this kind of self-assurance that a lot of the people around me didn't seem to have. And it was looking back, I understand it was because I, I knew who I was. I, I was still figuring out who Dolores, you know, was, but in terms of belonging in the world, I knew where I came from. I knew who my people were, I knew what my traditions were, I knew what I call the elementals, I knew what our elementals were, right, the values that ma- that mattered most to my culture. And I f- just feel like you give a child that, and it gives them so much self-confidence and so much emotional emotional confidence, too, to function in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And then I think the opposite is, or, or a complementary other part is also true, which is that I think there's something also about finding whatever it is that you didn't have. And I think that for some people, that kind of community is actually more of like a queer community or something that Mm -hmm. some kids are born into that, but most aren't, you know? And so I think, I mean, I, I think I define it even more broadly. Like, I think there's sort of these two elements, there's kind of knowing where you're coming from on a family level. And I think for some people that works in terms of where you also grow forward from. And I think for some people, for all kinds of different reasons, there needs to be some kind of sideways leap or something like that to then kind of find their own ancestors even. Like I don't think ancestors always have to be literal. Right. And I think that, you know, I I did an interview with – an amazing poet, Rachel Zucker, who she grew up in a strong Jewish community, and and it was really challenging for her, and so it kind of drove her the other way. And we've had these kind of opposite trajectories. And I was talking in that interview about how I feel like for me there is a privilege in not having grown up in a strong Jewish community, actually, because I I got to find it as an adult and find exactly what I wanted and make what I couldn't find. You know, there was it got to it got to fit me personally and I could actually see if I had grown up in a strong Jewish community that just didn't resonate with who I that wasn't supportive of creativity or super progressive or you know there are ways in which that actually could have been a real challenge for me so I think I kind of think everything has its positive side and its challenge side and we're all in like an evolving relationship with both of those things just like you were saying I mean there's I have benefits from growing up without that, and and you have benefits from growing up with that, and vice versa. You know? Exactly,
0: yeah. And I, you know, I like to talk a lot about too. I mean, I, I'm always like praising our cultures, our heritage, and, and encouraging people to access them to beautify their lives. But I'm also very careful to say, you know, there are some things we have to leave behind. <laughs> you yeah. know, and yes. part of the work is to be aware of that. And, Absolutely. And, you know what doesn't suit you anymore. You don't want to just that. That's kind of like where. I think, um, organized religion and super, you know, conservative tradition can gets the bad rap, right? Cause it's like, this is how we do things, do it, whether right. it's right, whether it's negative or, or positive, or whether it's feeding you or not feeding you, you know? Yes. And that's totally. where things get complicated.
1: Right. I mean, I think there's like an impulse of, of creativity and growth and change. And then there's an impulse of kind of holding on and building structures and and holding them and like those two are just constantly in conversation being human and I think where you're I mean I I love your project so much because I I feel like you're seeing like oh we have a lack of the structure element Mm -hmm. you know and, and of the holding on element and so to like add that in conversation with the sort of creativity reinvention that we're much better at I think is like a progressive society I think that's powerful
0: Thank you. I like that. And I think, I think like you, I am one of those people too, who needs the structure. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that, you know, you're a poet, so you understand the kind of principle that within structure you're freed. Yes, absolutely. And I just feel like we've lost, like people don't really get that anymore. That actually, even if it's just talking about taking care of your body, right. You know, Mm -hmm. that discipline is where you're in that discipline is where you're liberated.
1: Yes. And, and as we get older, and I think when people have serious illnesses, or when people die, like to have structures to step into in those moments, it's, you know, I think when you're sort of like, yes. in your 20s and healthy and single, mm-hmm. <laughs> there can be less need for some of those structures. I mean, I still felt a lot of that need. But I think things are kind of going well, you know, but I think some of those structures are there for moments where it's like, whoa, this is a challenging moment. And to be like, here is how we Mourn. here 's how we support people in mourning absolutely
0: it's, re- it's really helpful I completely get that and and also those those rituals you know like in our in the Catholic Church, the sacraments are they 're to mark these really big transitions you know right where you you people nowadays you know they get married and and marriage doesn 't really mean too much, and the not just what you 're promising right but the actual ritual of it. But really, you know, in many traditions, and certainly in the Catholic tradition, it's you're doing all of it for to mark very much a transition from one phase of your life into another. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, speaking of the tough times, I don't want to I don't want to let you go without touching a little bit on motherhood. <laughs> As a new mom myself, I, I love the opportunity to speak to other moms, uh, especially moms who are kind of are so passionate about their heritage and trying to live a life connected to it. Your most Fruciode is your most recent poetry book, correct? Yes. Yeah, so you had Divinity School and Fruciode and that is a lot about motherhood and the transition into motherhood, correct? It is. Yeah. 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 So again, like, you know, I'm sure th- I'm sure we could talk actually about women in the Torah, right? I've probably helped you with this transition, I'm guessing. Yeah, definitely. stories in there, yeah. Yeah, But you have – there was – I'm just going to take a quick excerpt from one of the poems in Frucciode. You say – are you right? I regard my former life with a distant affection as an astronaut looks through a porthole at the small green planet where she used to live. Beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also very much – it's kind of this like the bittersweet part of – motherhood, which is you have to, you you have to leave this kind of single life. I mean, even if you were married for 10 years, right. Right. I don't know what a better word for it. Uh, your, your matron life. I mean, I don't know, but, and you, you are really moving into a, into a new phase, a new body, a new life. Talk to me a little bit about kind of how these themes came up in this, in this book of poetry.
1: I, Writing this book really got me through <laughs> the years of pregnancy, birth, early motherhood. I was one of those people who always wanted to have kids. I knew I was going to wanted to have kids. I, I was not ambivalent about motherhood. I was really excited. And I was like, really shocked by how challenging the emotional experience was for me, especially the transition itself. And I had like kind of challenging birth and time after the birth and things like that, but nothing compared to what a lot of people go through, but still it was, it was not easy for me. And so being, I mean, I'm one of the things I'm so grateful for about poetry, endlessly grateful is that it's this form where you can just kind of like dip into a moment. You can kind of follow that moment anywhere and you can really inhabit everything that you're thinking and feeling. It doesn't have to be like fit into the structure of a story. It can sort of just be in like 10 or 20 or 30 lines, mm. which is kind of how it feels to me to be in a moment where there's just so many layers of reality going on. <laughs> you know, Absolutely.
0: Like, I, I get that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like
1: how your body's feeling, how your mind yep. is feeling, whether you're tired or not, whether you're hungry or not. And then there's like what you're worried about and then what you're actually physically doing. And, you know, and a poem to me is a way of holding all of that. And so each of these poems sort of, I kind of wrote about like a different element of, the transition to early motherhood. And so some of them are quite literal about nursing and some of them are more like kind of psychedelic crazy about like just thinking about, whoa, the the universe and like kind of pre-Israelite goddesses and and these huge ideas that really came into my mind a lot when I was holding this little tiny newborn human that contains like now my daughter's almost eight. So even just thinking that newborn, (laughs) you know, in eight years has become like her own amazing person. Like the way that a human baby is, it's such a kind of paradox of like helplessness, but containing the actual future, you know, Mm -hmm. they'll be the leaders one day. And so all of those kind of, and then the emotional challenges of it, and also the, the beauty of it as well. I just tried to really pour into this book and be really real about it as well.
0: So were you writing these poems after you had your second child or?
1: I wrote these poems over probably four years uh, throughout birth, pregnancy and early like an in infancy with both kids because my kids are like two and a quarter years apart. So it's sort of written over the period of bo- having both of them.
0: I like how you keep mentioning how long your projects have taken you (laughs) because I'm currently in, I don't know if this is motherhood, honestly, Alicia, I don't know what's going on with me, but I'm, I'm currently in a phase where I've started the same novel four different times. I just sat down to work on it again today. And I'm like, this is a bunch of bullshit. Like I'm like, I don't want to work on it. I hate it. And then like, I have this like nonfiction book that I wrote when I, uh, like a pretty good for first draft when I was pregnant. Mm Mm-hmm I was like, maybe I'll just go back to that. And I'm looking at that. And I'm like, this is shit. And and I'm like, I think I'm just like, and I was thinking about it, you know, like, is it possible that I'm this bad, you know, like as a writer, and I have to say that, like life's experiences showed me that that's not the case. But at the same time, I think I was thinking about it. Maybe it's just this idea that I feel like I don't have a lot of time yeah and so i'm putting this kind of pressure on my i'm totally like i'm jumping off here and going in a completely different it. direction yeah, yeah. but um that maybe i don't i feel like i don't have enough time and so when i do get that like hour and a half because the baby is napping i almost like want like bang for my buck and i'm like which of these projects is going to you is going to like get published which of yeah. these projects is going to make an impact? Which of these projects is going to better my family's life? Yeah. And naturally, I end up not being able to write a damn thing. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> bad
1: <way> think. <laughs> Yeah. You know, say, like, while I was, you know, writing these poems, I would just kind of write little drafts on my phone of, like, I keep my writing and editing processes completely separate. So when I'm writing something, I'm not thinking about whether it's good at all. And then That's when I'm smart. editing it, then I'm like, you know, just a totally, it's like, I'm a different person, <laughs> but when I'm writing, I'm just like, you know, and, and often I would be like nursing or some, or on the subway somewhere cause I was still living in New York for the first few months of my daughter's life. And, and I would just kind of, you know, write in my notes app or or write even just email to myself, like a kind of pre-write like 10 lines or two lines or whatever it was. And that, that was a really good way for me to do it because I don't think I had that kind of like editing Capacity right then because I didn't have the time, like you're saying, like, but I had the generative capacity because I mm. kind of there was so much going on in my head. And yes, that, I get that. So I don't know. I mean, I, my, the way that my projects take a long time, and the way that um, I do it, which I learned at a creative capital training, which is a great nonprofit that gives trainings for artists. And it's like maybe 12 years ago. And they were like, their take on it was like, every artist should have like kind of multiple projects or not should, but one way to do it is multiple projects happening, but in different stages. So like, there'll be like one project in research and development stage, you know, one project that's Mm. in kind of generation, one that's being edited, one that you're putting out, and maybe one that you're like kind of archiving or putting to bed. And that really helped me because I basically will just go on my own energy of how I'm feeling that day, if I'm really tired, and I feel like I'm not going to be able to generate something new, then maybe I'll just like, do some cleaning up of a chapter or, you know, something like that. But if I'm like, have some burning desire to write about something, then I'll just let everything else go and be like, okay, this is working. You know, I'm just doing first draft of a
0: new thing. So that's, that's been really helpful. Whoa, for me. Especially I love that. I think I needed to hear that. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah, <laughs> because that makes so much sense. Cause I think like, to, like for instance, this morning, if you're not, I wasn't feeling working on, a novel, right? Like, like taking, going into a fictional world, yes. blank page, creating something out of absolutely nothing. You just did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Exactly. But I did feel like kind of working on stuff for the podcast for this this new project for the show yeah Yeah. and I think in my head I just go well you can't stick to the book like you can't stick to anything you know I'm just kind of beating myself up but looking at it through what you just said it's like you know it's just kind of like no this is another project you just focus on what you're feeling on focusing on that day but it's always it's always a creative project
1: absolutely yeah absolutely and then you know I use like as long as I follow deadlines then I won't lose track of things, you know? And, and I can tell like, if I'm like, Oh, I'm just resisting this, then I'll maybe set myself a deadline. But a lot of times the best thing is just, yeah, like follow where the energy is. It's hard enough to create like, especially when you have a baby and stuff. So go with like, what's lighting you up that moment.
0: Mm, Thank you for saying that. I definitely need to hear that. I I do feel like there is this creative energy though happening. And I, and I'm sure you felt the same thing in your, it's, ironic because you would think like before you had the baby that oh gosh like I'll never write again because I'll be so (laughs) exhausted I'll never have another creative thought right my whole like all of my energy all of my mind will be on this baby but there's this it's almost like in creating it generates more energy to create
1: I had that. I mean, I've definitely had very close friends be like for a year and a half afterwards, I just couldn't make anything. And so I always like to hold room for that for people because it doesn't Mm. mean like you'll never make something again. All
0: these friends come back
1: to like, you know, resume their artistic. Totally.
0: Yes. Smart. But
1: personally, I definitely, I mean, you know, I was thinking about this when you were talking about looking at the projects and being like, oh, I'm not into this. Like, I also felt like my perspective changed so hugely Uh. that it took a while for me to like, I couldn't really work on what I had been working on before. Like I had to kind of start something new from where i was and then i kind of came back and started integrating my new perspectives into what i had been working on before mm. but there was a big shift and i and for me that brought creative energy but it also was a bit of a disruption with what i had been doing before
0: that's a great point too something for me to think about yeah Okay. So we have been talking for over an hour, (laughs) if you can believe it. And I would love to kind of wrap this up by asking you, speaking again of motherhood and creativity, how are you teaching your children to participate in uh, their ancestral culture, in their lineage? And, you know, if you have any advice for other people out there who are either moms or dads or thinking about having a family, you know, this is a really big thing for people making sure their, that their children understand the culture and understand where they come from and the traditions.
1: Yeah. Well, I have so many thoughts about that. I mean, it's so interesting. As a teacher of Jewish traditions, I've really realized, like, I, can't, I can use some of my skills with my kids, but I can't use my same benchmarks <laughs> with my kids, you know, <laughs> because it, they're at home. So sometimes they're just going to be bored and rebellious during our, like, Friday night, Shabbat dinner blessings. And I've seen enough other kids at other people's houses be that way that I'm like, okay, you know, if I, if I were teaching a class on this, I would kind of expect good behavior because it's a classroom, but this is them in their safe space at Uh home. And, you know, we have behavior expectations, but they have to be somewhat flexible. And I want to keep in mind the point, which is that I want them to, I want them to love it, you know, and I, they don't have to love it every minute, but the big picture is more than any specific content that I want to make sure they have. I want them to encounter it over and over again, so that it's kind of just programmed into them. And even if they don't know what's happening necessarily, I, I want to just kind of expose them to it over and over. Yep. And trust that those memories will be meaningful later on. And I also want to figure out like how can it be, you know, something that To the extent possible, that's a positive experience for them. So try to, you know, minimize, minimize the parts of it that they truly can't stand (laughs) and maximize, you know, think about ways to kind of show up Jewishly in a language that makes sense to them when I can to just make it like kind of spoonful of honey makes the medicine Mm, go down mm. because I want them to feel good about it. And so my own like dietary Jewish like observance is different from my husband's. My husband is Jewish, but he's less observant than I am. I'm not super observant, but there's like, I don't mix meat and dairy and he does. And so I've been, I've just decided like my kids will go with my husband's level in general. And then I've also kind of decided that for me, since we don't live in an Orthodox community, I'm not Orthodox. We don't like keep all of the laws. I basically decided as soon as they were like in elementary school, which they're in kindergarten and second grade now, when you're at home or with me, you know, then, then we do the rules that I have kind of set for the family or that my husband, you know, together that we've set. But when you're with a friend, I'm going to leave it up to you. So if your friend is like, if you have a sleepover and they're serving bacon at breakfast, it is up, it's truly up to you whether you eat that, you know, because I don't want them to feel guilty and I don't want them to feel limited. And mm-hmm. I don't, in my heart of hearts, like my version of Judaism is not that there's some like, punishment for eating bacon. Like I grew up eating bacon. My parents still eat bacon. And so I, I want to kind of balance, like, this is the structure. This is the my observance. And kind of like, I want you to know this rule. And I also want you to like, kind of test out just a little bit, like, you know, your own decisions about those things when you're, when you're not with me.
0: <laughs> yeah. it was kind of like what we've been saying this whole time, you know, giving them the structure and then allowing them to be like free within it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I get that. That's, that's good advice for people. I think, you know, kind of the whole like spoonful of honey to, to get it down. I do think that again, there were a lot of things that were very strict in my household because of the culture, mm. but, and they were, you know, painful because they were so strict, but, but also we do a lot of, I, you know, Italian Americans and Italians are known for being loud and loving and yeah. inviting. And that's very true for the most part. And I think that, is very attractive when you're young and, you know, there's a, a house full of people and everyone's yeah. just laughing and the food is so good and people are cracking jokes. So, uh, it definitely makes it more appealing. One big tradition that we actually still do is, uh, jarring tomatoes in the summer.
1: Oh, that's so great.
0: It is. It's a very beloved like Italian American tradition mm. and not everybody does it anymore, but we do. And I, I always, Think about it because it's really very labor intensive. You know, it's almost like insane in this day and age to do it because you you can go to the store and get a can of imported tomatoes. Right. Right. But it's always been a tradition that we looked forward to. So even as little kids. And it's kind of insane, like, why, right? You have to wake up so early, you're out in the sun, you're working all day long, and now, like, the next generation, my nieces and nephews, look forward to it Mm. every year. Same thing. And it's because it was made fun. Yeah that's the bottom line it was always joyous and there you know it was a lot of work but it was a lot of laughter and everybody was together and at the end of a long day of work you eat this totally delicious meal of you know spaghetti made with sauce from the tomatoes we just the tomatoes we kind of didn't jar maybe they had a bruises we cut them out and like everybody's around the table drinking wine having a good time yeah, I love that. Oh, my gosh, I <laughs> want to I want to join you. Yes, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> you. Of course. <laughs> so I as we wrap up, I we unfortunately, we didn't get to talk about a Kaddish for Bernie Madoff. And I know that that's your current, like big project that's in post production. Can you just tell us a little bit about it? And just so people can kind of look into it and know that it's coming. I'll link to it and on the show notes as well.
1: Yes, absolutely. So it started as a, a one-woman show that I wrote based on a year that I had an artist residency on Wall Street yeah. from a nonprofit. So interesting. It, yeah, it's a wild program. So there's, mm-hmm. they, this nonprofit takes empty office space in the financial district and gives it to artists to work in for a year. And I was there the year that happened to be the financial collapse, which is also when Bernie Madoff turned himself in as having carried out probably the largest financial crime in history. And, you know, it's just stealing billions and billions, $50 billion. And I ended up, I I wanted to think about him from a Jewish perspective. I wanted to think, like, what does it mean that someone from my community um, did this horrible thing? And what can be done almost ritually? And there's an ancient tradition of excommunication, right, which would be what... It sounds like Mm -hmm. saying essentially you're you're out of the tribe and dead to us. And if you do excommunicate someone, you would recite the mourners' kaddish, which is the prayer. Oh yeah, I say kaddish, but it's kaddish, right? Yeah. Okay. Either one is fine. Okay. No, Mm -hmm. no. no, no. (laughs) So, so I thought like, wow, should we say a kaddish for Bernie Madoff? Like, should we excommunicate him? Or on the opposite extreme, is this the result of not? Of, you know, the financial system being deregulated and like he was sort of carrying out this massive fraud in plain sight. Mm-hmm. So is it like this is all him and he's this outlier or is he almost a bit of a scapegoat for financial greed on Wall Street in general and just like the, the, the kind of broken American financial system? And so I kind of did all this research and went, you know, considered kind of these two viewpoints and interviewed all these people who were affected in some in different ways or part of the story. And it's kind of like 75% really serious and like 25% really goofy because I wrote songs in the interviewees voices, like a lawyer for the victims or like an FBI agent who worked on the case. And so I would sing these songs in their characters. And so Yeah, basically a couple years ago, a director in Portland approached me about turning it into a feature film. And so we did. And so we wrapped production in the fall this past year, and it'll probably be out in 2021 is the idea. So we're in post-production now. So it's this meditation on sort of spirituality, finance, interconnectedness, and like the limits of community.
0: Amazing. (laughs) <laughs> it sounds so interesting. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it. And I, I love, again, that, you know, you took this, this kind of world event, uh, mm-hmm. so impactful, right? And, and you brought your own, you know, your own culture, your own heritage into it, and, th- and these questions that come from it. And, you know, you, you recite this prayer when someone dies, or when when someone's dead to you, right? Right. And right. so what are these, where does he fall in? And, and in the larger story of what happened, love it. Yeah. It's a, a true artist, Alicia. You are, <laughs> you, that Laura. is for sure. <laughs> I have so enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for listening spending some time with Alicia and I. If you like what you hear, please Subscribe to the show, share with your friends, share on social media. The more, the merrier in this conversation. You can find me on Instagram at Dolores underscore Alfieri underscore Toronto. That's also uh, linked in the show notes. If you want to learn more about me or more about the show, please visit Bellafigurapodcast.com. And please DM me or email me at Dolores at com with your thoughts and any show ideas you'd like me to pursue. And just to let you know, Dolores is spelled D-O-L-O-R-E-S. I know everyone spells it differently, but that's how I spell it. Here's to knowing your roots and cultivating a beautiful life from their power. Until next time.